Welcome to this week's edition of Dugout Dish Podcast. As usual, I'm Andy Kirikides, joined by my co-host, Coach Glasser. How are we doing? Great, how are you? I'm good. Excited. We got another fantastic guest this week. West Coast fella. He's been on the East Coast before, but he's currently on the West Coast. And I'm going to kick it over to you, Keith, to give us the intro of of this week's guest. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Um, super excited tonight. Um, somebody who I, I, I've known for a while. Um, I, I feel like it's it's been a lot longer. I, I went back and looked the other day and I was like, wow, I've actually known um, CJ for a, a pretty long time. <laughs> um, you know, but tonight we have uh, the video technology and analytics coordinator at Stanford, um, CJ Baker. CJ, welcome. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, I'm excited to be here, man. It is. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that the other day, how I was like, oh yeah, it's you know, it's just been a couple of years, and it's it's been a, a couple, two, three, four. Like it's and the time is the time has absolutely flown by. I know. I feel I feel like when um you know when when the pandemic happened, it kind of you, you kind of lost sight of how like how much time passed, and then all of a sudden you look up and you're like, damn, I like it's been seven, eight years. <laughs> but um you know, if you could, uh, you know, just give the listeners a little a, a quick rundown of how, you know, where you are and then how you've gotten to where you currently are. Yeah, so uh, I'm in a, a non-traditional coaching role at Stanford as the video technology and analytics coordinator here. It's kind of a, our version of the player development role, but, uh, you know, Stanford's got to put the smart label on everything. So um, it's an all-encompassing role. It's It's pretty cool. I have a very um, windy path to, to get to where I am. Um, right out of college, I started off as, in politics as a speech writer for the mayor of San Diego and ended up hating politics. So quit that, uh, flipped blizzards at a dairy queen for a little while, while I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, uh, and got a chance to coach a Legion team there of kids who had been cut from travel teams, uh, and just fell in love with teaching and coaching and, just being able to develop kids. It was awesome. So I did some research on uh, where I could get a degree in that kind of thing, if that existed. And it had always been my dream to go to the University of Washington. So I got a master's degree there and was a grad assistant at Seattle University under Donnie Harrell, who's a great human being, learned a lot from him. Um, got to be along some great players. Tarek Skubal, who's in the big leagues with the Tigers, now was on that team. And it was, it was a blast. And from there, I, I kind of had the two roads where I could have gone stay in Washington in my bubble and do like the JUCO D3 route out there and, and just be comfortable. And it's great. Cause I am friends with a lot of the Northwest conference guys and, and they do an awesome job, but saw a job listing on, uh, and it had to be the NCA website for a division two school in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. Um, and it was with Jim Chester, who's now at Gardner Webb. And I just sort of sent him an email, told him who I was he called me immediately. He's a great salesman. So I was like, elect, you know, electrified by the conversation. And uh, he he's like, hey, I don't have a ton of money to give you, but we can make it work. And I took the job sight unseen. I packed up like a little white van with my mom and <laughs> drove across the country to what is probably the biggest culture shock of my entire life, right? Getting out there. Uh, but it was the right time to go. It was end of August. The foliage was starting to change. The Poconos are beautiful around then. Uh, so I ended up at a, a division two school where we just got to kind of like be bandits, right? We were in our own little area, got to practice a ton. We had great kids, great coaching staff. We had good synergy among everybody, uh, spent a year there and then ended up at uh, Bucknell University under Scotty Heather, who's, I mean, today still uh, really close in my life. Anytime that we've made it to the World Series the last couple of years, I text him and just say thank you because I wouldn't be where I am without the opportunity he gave me. Uh, and you know, I was kind of getting the pull to come back West after a couple of years at, at Bucknell. And one of my good friends got a job at a division two school in orange County, uh, Biola university, uh, Jeff Calhoun, who's actually now at Campbell with Justin Hare. Um, and he, uh, <clears throat> he called me, he's like, Hey, I don't have much, but I know that you're bouncing at a bar and <laughs> coaching baseball at the same time. So I at least have benefits and, you know, a couple thousand for you. So you want to come and, so I went, it was awesome, lived about 15 minutes from the beach, like multiple beaches. 
uh, lived the Orange County life. It was great. Uh, battled through the pandemic, recruited through the pandemic, and uh, had a blast just living with one of my best friends and, and doing it. And then January of 22, I got a call from Steve Rodriguez here, who's our hitting coach, and kind of asked if I'd be interested in working in, at Stanford. And it wasn't as easy of a yes as you'd think right away because of the role switch, right? Being on the field my my whole career and then doing this is uh, a di- definitely a different thing. But um, after kind of hearing the staff talk and obviously the opportunity to, one, be in what is, you know, in its last year of a really great conference in the Pac-12 and play against some awesome competition. And then two, being able to actually like coach in front of my folks and be in front of my folks a couple of times. They're still up in Seattle. So, um, you know, the Oregon series, Oregon State meant a lot to me. Washington, Washington State meant a lot to me. So it's it's been cool. It was like uh, getting ready for for Azusa Pacific and the rest of the D2 schools in December. And then I was in Omaha like six months later and then did it again this year. So it's uh, it's legitimately been, I mean, a, a ride that I haven't really gotten a chance to just take a breath and like reflect on, but it's been awesome. <clears throat> That's great. I, I think the one thing um, that we try to, you know, kind of to, to get people to kind of understand is that this is a, a very interconnected business, even if you think that, um, you know, you might not necessarily think that somebody knows somebody from the West Coast or the East Coast, vice versa. Um, You know, between you and, you know, Andy and I are very close with Eric Suplee at San Francisco, who we played with and Tatoma and, you know, the list goes on and on. So, you know, it's as it's a very big country, but it's a very small a very small world and a very small business world for us. So I think like, you know, it, it, it's fun to have guys on from the, you know, we're East coast guys, but to have guys on from the West coast that we've known for a long time, um, you know, to kind of show how small this world actually is. Oh, a hundred percent. And like, you know, and it, it really is, I get a text from Chuck Thielman who was, you know, at, at Stevens for a while. And I think he just took a job at maybe Ar- Arcadia. Yep. Um, And I I get texts from him about players that we follow up on and everything. And, you know, there's, there's guys that, you know, some of my East coast friends want, need to put eyes on, but they can't necessarily, uh, you know, fly out to the Bay area for a day. So we, we do that. And it really is like, it is a tight knit group. And if you don't know somebody directly, you know, someone through someone, if you're doing, doing things the right way. Right. Um, so, I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit there, but the, the first question we always ask everyone who comes on here before we, really just start to make this a conversation about recruiting and baseball. But, um, you know, how do you, like, how do you guys identify players at Stanford? Yeah. And it's, it's a good question because it's a, I think ever changing business, right? Social media has had a huge impact on what we do. I think it's easier to find players now than ever before with that, you know, the, the population of good players has grown um our niche is still pretty small because we don't get favor entries or anything like that it's it's still you have to be pretty academically sound and everything but we do lean on our our connections right whether it's it's somebody just calling me from the middle of florida that i met one time or you know coach egar recruiting guys is one of the most connected people i've ever met he gets calls from from people and you gotta trust you gotta trust that circle Right and the the opinions of of your friends and everybody, so it's it's kind of a a blend of hey, this swing actually looks kind of good on on Twitter. My algorithm's got you know player after player on it, and you do kind of follow up on that stuff all the way to kind of trusting your contacts, and then obviously attending some of like the main events are really huge too. You're obviously in the analytics position, and I'm a I'm a numbers analytics guy. I'm really curious to understand how much of that do you guys leverage from an evaluation perspective, right? And are there, I guess my question is kind of two part, how much of that matters to you guys in the, in the recruiting process? But then the other part is, are you able to leverage data that you have on your current players and kind of overlay that with, all right, well, this guy had this kind of stuff coming in that kind of looked the same, like just maybe talk a little bit about how you leverage some of that data. For sure. The, the analytics piece, I mean, if, if you are in our competitive market and you're not using it, it's you're you're I, th- I think a little bit behind, right? Uh, with the availability of so much of this data, investing in it, uh, even to understand it at a surface level, is really big. Uh, I'm kind of adopted numbers, right? Like I wasn't born into it. I got here and 
um, just took a deep dive on everything. And it's, it's helped me a lot on the evaluation process of being able to um, say, Hey, like, you know, this kid may have a good fastball, but it's a dead zone fastball. Right. And I don't know that it's going to get much better for us. Uh, so us being able to run TrackMan at camps and different things like that is, is really big. Anytime we receive that data from players, right. They'll send it in the recruiting process uh just as validation it, there are certain things that can like pique your interest right a kid has good feel for spin that's one of the tougher things to teach i think uh and then there are some predictive traits that we can take a look at we run kinetracks and we run trackman here so kind of it, you know is this kid going to be a little bit more injury prone we do a lot more of that once they're on campus but to your to your point too being able to leverage it and say okay we've had some pictures with uh, this type of separation on their arsenal. And we have this kid coming in who kind of profiles very similar, even down to what the tilt coming out of their hand looks like and what spin movement plot, all that stuff looks like. Then maybe we can coach that kid with some similar things that we used with uh, Quinn Matthews for us, right? Like there, there are hopefully some things that, that we can put side by side and say, okay, this has been successful in the past. And let's use that same kind of dev path to help them be successful, you know, in that same, same path. It's a great answer. It's, it's super interesting because I feel like there's a, a fine line you have to draw of making sure that you understand that you're leveraging the data, but that that's not the sole piece of the evaluation and that you get to know the kid and everything. Question I have for you is you deal with some really, some really high end academic, very intelligent young men. How do you balance being able to give them that information without stepping away from you just need to compete when you get the ball in your hand on game day? That's a, and that, that's a great question too, right? I, when we, when we run like our pitching camp, I kind of give this, uh, this story of, all right, it's, it's how many, how many minutes is a pilot in control of an airplane, Right. And, you know, the kids can answer it's maybe 10 to 15 total minutes. The rest of it, they flip on autopilot and and they're just good to go until takeoff landing, all that. And one of the concerns in like the flight industry had been for a while, are pilots really going to know what to do when autopilot comes off? Are they still going to remember their training and all that because they've been able to rely on it for so long? And so I, I said competing, either whether it's for hitters or pitchers, is a lot like that, Right we can give you the tools and we can give you the information and everything and your safety is in that autopilot, but there's going to be a point when you're, when you're tired, when you're, you know, in the middle of the season and maybe you're a freshman that's thrown more innings than they ever have before. And the autopilot breaks down. And then from that point forward, how can you regain control and really be able to be the competitor in there? And I give a lot of credit to our, our pitching coach, coach eager is, phenomenal on the mental side of the game with those guys he uh he was brought up in a in a hard-nosed environment in baseball and um he's got such a great blend of a great sense of humor but also a, a really high standard for our guys and so we use the technology and the data piece in in everything that we do but at the same time you know there's there's points where we have to turn it off and we have to say all right here's your external focus put the other stuff aside and let's go compete right here. We have to be able to do this without you turning around and being like, all right, was my spin good there? Was it a good pitch or was it not? Right. Um, so yeah, I, I think that there is a healthy balance and that's one of the things I think we do really well. And that's why, you know, we had a freshman last year in the playoffs close out a game in game one of the playoffs and then be able to start it in game two and came up big for us right on both sides. Got two, I think two wins in one day and Nick Dugan and, that's a kid who threw more than he ever had and was able to get out there and just and put it all aside and just compete with what he had left. And I think if he's thinking about the other stuff at that moment, we're probably not talking about a third straight trip to Omaha, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's the, there's, I, th I think the big thing that we hear when we talk to, you know, a lot of coaches is that like being able to strike that balance, right? Like there's, there's a time and a place for it and it's, you use it as a tool to be able to get guys better, but you can't 100% coach off of it. Like you can't, you can't just rely heavily, so heavily on analytics to just be like, okay, like you do this and you're going to be good, but you still have to actually go out there and compete, you know, when the lights are on, you know, and it, it's a lonely place, that pitching mound, um, you know, there's, there's no one really coming to help you um, if you can't figure it out. And if they are, likely you're coming out of the game. So 
you know, you, you still got to be able to do it. And I think, you know, what a lot of people don't understand, at least at the college level for, for us and for you guys, like, you know, you're, you're competing and, and pitching in situations like this far more frequently than you think of, um, right? Like whether it's, you know, pressure bullpens or inner squads and, you know, it starts in the fall, like you're, you're trying to simulate that stuff, you know, and, and Andy and I have, you know, kind of talked about some of the guys that we have that are freshmen that are like, I, I don't know how to hold a runner. Like I'm a one five to the plate and they're, you know, I, I might not pitch, you know, it's things like that at the, at the, you know, the, the lower levels of high, you know, at high school, but when you get to college where all of a sudden it's like, Hey man, you could spin the heck out of it. But if you can, if you're a one eight to the plate, like you're probably not pitching, <laughs> like, you know, unless you're getting a clean inning and you're electric and you're just going to strike everyone out, but that's, you know, those guys are few and far between. Um, you know, I, with, with with what you guys have academically and athletically, um, you know, what what would you say the steepest learning curve for freshmen are when they get to campus? Yeah, and that that's a great question. We we kind of, we had a meeting with our freshmen and for the first time ever, a couple of undergraduate transfers that we brought in that are sophomores, and a big uh, echoing statement from every member of the staff was. Hey, you, you got to be able to be okay with failure. And that's a big thing. And I, I really do think with kids that are high academic, having seen it even at Bucknell and here, the similarity is a lot of times these kids are able to figure out problems their whole lives, right? Just by being able to work through it and work through it, whether it's math or even with, with our kids baseball, because they, they're they so talented. Uh, I think it can be frustrating at times and, you know, a, a lonely place to be one of the guys that struggles through the fall. And, um, you know, I, I think that one of the things we really preach on those kids is don't let the fall be the end all be all for you. You know, you're going to fail and that's going to be a good teacher for you. And we have we have a lot of kids that don't perform at all in the fall. And we're like, oh, my God, I don't know if that guy's going to help us. And he was supposed to start in center and hit three. Right. And then they come out in the spring and baseball takes over and, and they do their thing. So I'd say the one of the steepest learning curves is just the ability to handle failure uh, and just be able to, you're not going to figure out every problem right away. And there's no perfection for you in this game, especially at this level. And um, it's okay. Like that's, that's fine. And this is a safe place for you to fail and to try things. And, you know, we'll get in the trenches with you and do our best to figure it out. But at some point, we trust the fact that you were recruited here we like you for a reason and it's, you know, you're going to be all right. Just play within your ability. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's the hardest thing I think for, at least when I was coaching, one of the hardest things to get younger guys to understand is that you're, you're going to fail, you know, and, and, you know, Andy and I have talked about this and a lot of people have like you, and you saw this when you recruited, um, like when you were out recruiting, not to say you're not recruiting now, but when you were, you know, out pounding it, um, like, you know, you could learn more why, when you show up to watch a pitcher and, you know, he gets lashed around the yard a little bit, you know, if all of a sudden he melts down and, you know, it goes south real quick and his body language is horrible and, you know, he's blaming the umpire and everything else, like that kid's likely going to start falling down your list of, uh, of guys that you want to recruit and bring into your program versus hey, kid got lashed around the yard, but he competed and, you know, he got into tough situation. He pitched in and out of tough situations, like gave up a couple hits, a couple hard hit balls, but, you know, ended up straining a bunch of guys and and only gave up one run. Like that's the kid, like all of a sudden that kid starts jumping up your board a little bit because you're like, yo, he's tough. Like when, when, when he wants to, like he he's going to compete, you know, and there's, it's going to happen when you get to college. Like I don't, I don't care who you are, you know, you, you're going to find, so you're going to fail. Like it, it's just inevitable in this game, you know, and your ability to be able to handle that, I, I think is, you know, a, a huge separator for young guys. I mean, I've been there too. Like you have that guy who shows up, really, like, he's going to be really good. And then he's not. Um, you know, and we had coach Rossi on a couple weeks ago. I digress for a second, but he, like, there was a guy, Dan Pelini, who was, I, I, Jimmy was on, Rob was on. Like I, I, he was there when I was at Siena. He was apparently awful. His freshman fall. And then went out and hit like 425 with like 16 bolts his freshman year and was like a freshman All-American. He ended up getting, he had like 59 home runs, I think. Like it was a joke, but like the point is like, you're going to fail. Even a guy who went in a top 10 rounder, like failed, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's fun to hear those stories because it, you know, it, it sheds light on the fact of like your go, like you can play at the highest level and be really, really good and you're, you're going to fail. 
and how you respond to it is is the the biggest thing I think for for incoming guys. Yeah, and I I think we we've, we've had some great examples of it too. I mean, we had Brock Jones who who's a high high draft pick and and Tommy Troy both have different struggles. Tommy's a first rounder this year. And I mean, there's two years in a row where he got benched and he had to come out of the top of it and figure out how to watch the game from a different angle and then become better from it. And he was a guy that was up on the railing and a great teammate asking about pitch sequences, this and that. And he handled the failure just by learning the game from a different viewpoint. Right. And then we had Brock Jones who like, if, if, if I could ever just like tell a story over and over again to younger people, it would be that this guy was, you know, a projected first rounder. He was, he was an amazing player and he started off the first month and a half of the season hitting like 200 and striking out over and over and over again. I mean, just like in a, a ton and he would do the same thing every single time he'd get out. He'd either have a rollover or strikeout. He'd get out. He'd run into the dugout. He'd calmly put his helmet down and his bat back in the bat rack. He'd get up on the railing and he'd just be right there and on the railing in the box with the next guy up. And it was over and over and over again. I think we were all kind of waiting for like, is Brock going to break at some point? I mean, because all of us would have, right? I would have, I, yeah, all of us would have. And he never, never once did. Ended up in the season hitting 20 pumps, you know, over 300 and better numbers than the year before. But he went through a period where you're like, I mean, all the pressure, everything, this guy's got to break. And he was the same guy uh, every single game. And so if that guy can do it, I mean, anybody can, can handle failure and, and be able to do it at a high level. It's great. I love hearing those. Yeah, when, when you're a freshman and you walk in and you got to try to get Tommy Troy or Brock Jones out, like it's not going to go good for you right away, like most likely. Or like you got to come in and try to hit Quinn Matthews. And like, yeah, not everybody gets to walk into a program that's as elite as yours, but it's a massive jump when you get to college. And I know I saw it specifically when I was at William & Mary that the freshmen who could kind of roll with the punches and didn't have those big ebbs and flows from an emotional perspective. They're usually the ones who come springtime were able to find a way to get in the lineup or contribute to a winning team. And how you handle it is, you know, for a lot of guys, it can be different. You can take the coaching and you can run with it, or you can kind of break under the pressure and it might put you behind the eight ball a little bit. Um, And it can make that transition a little bit harder and, you know, you may not get the opportunity that you would if you were able to, you know, kind of self-assess and and realize, okay, like this isn't high school anymore. I got to, might have to do a few things different, might have to make a swing adjustment, might have to go sit down with the hitting coach and say, hey, here's what I'm going through. You know, I'm, I'm here's my mental process. Like, do we need to change something? The kids who are willing to do that are willing to kind of embrace that they have improvements that need to be made. I think they tend to have a lot of success. And I mean, I think the two things that you got to with Tommy Troy and we harp on it big time with, with the, you mentioned with Tommy Troy and Brock Jones is quality teammates. Like they're the best guys on the field on almost every field they step on. Nobody would have batted an eye if they took a few minutes to get pissed off, but they didn't because I got to imagine that it's a little bit bigger than their personal success. And that mattered to them more than anything in it. When you get guys who are that talented, who are willing to do that, like as a coach, and I'm sure that, that you guys recognize this, it, man, it makes your life a lot easier because nobody else has an excuse. If Tommy Troy's not getting mad because he's on the bench or Brock Jones isn't, isn't getting mad because he's struggling a little bit, you know, what right does anybody else to have to be mad? Like, Let's continue to be a really good teammate and try to win games. 100%. What kind of support system do you guys put in place from an academic perspective for the guys at Stanford? Because I think whether you're at a school like Stanford or not, college can be a heck of a transition from an academic perspective. There's a lot of freedom. Um, You know, you're not going to class from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. It's not as regimented. Obviously, you're at the top end of the academics perspective, but I think it'd be interesting to to shed some light on some of the things that you may preach to your guys in terms of time management, and then also maybe some of the the, the systems that you have in place to make sure that that specifically freshmen have a, a chance to transition effectively. Yeah. So 
We have, I mean, one, we have a athletic academic uh, supervisor in Nick Combo for us who does a great job. Uh, he's weekly checking in with professors. If there's any uh, slip ups or anything or trends that are going in the wrong direction, he can flag that early on and we can attack that and address it and figure out what adjustments might need to be made. We've had guys need to take academic days uh, and, you know, Coach Esker, who is a Stanford alum himself, two times over in an undergrad and master's, he understands one, the value of the degree, and then two, the work that it takes to be able to obtain that degree. And so having a, a leader like that who's been through it really is valuable for our guys because there's no like guilt tripping on going to practice over, you know, Hey coach, I really got to take a day to catch up. It's like, fine. Yeah. Whatever you need to do. The one day of practice isn't going to be the thing that breaks, you know, breaks it for us. So that, that part, I think in the, just the support from like, Hey, we, if you need it, we got you that kind of thing. Nick does a great job with that. And then too, I mean, our, our guys are, really good at self-governing a lot of things. And the academic piece is one of them. I think if you come here, you already have the time management piece in place because you had to do, you had to follow the blueprint of how to get into school here. And there's, there's not a lot of slip ups allowed along that way. Uh, But once, once they get into school, our older guys are great about kind of recommending what classes are good, what professors work well with the athletic schedule uh, and, and then who to take. And then they get paired up a lot of times with other athletes and they do a great job there, but they also have, you know, free tutoring available to them, uh, for I think X amount of hours, but there's, yeah, it's, it's almost hard to not be successful here. They, they do everything they can to make sure they maintain that, you know, graduation rate and, and the, you know, the four-year rate and everything. That's great to hear. And I I think it's, I think it's something that's in place at a lot of schools, but it's a question that we get from a lot of parents of, well, okay, like, are they going to have this? Yes, they are. Everybody's going to do it a little bit different, but people want to see these players succeed. And it's not just about the baseball side of it. Like at the end of it, most of the guys aren't going to make a ton of money or, or make a living playing baseball. And, you know, being able to put them in a place where they can be successful in the classroom is you know, it's it's important to a lot of people. It's not just the coaches, but there's that support staff that is there to to move guys along and make sure that they're doing the right thing. So, um, thanks for shedding some light on that. The uh, I'm going to take this in a, a slightly different direction, but sticking with the the academics because we've you know everyone knows my background, but you were at Bucknell, um, and then you're also obviously at Stanford. Um, how much do you guys put? of an emphasis on the weight room. And the reason I ask is because a lot of people, you know, even when I was at RPI, which is high end division three academic, like I noticed in my last five years of coaching, like how, how much more physical guys were coming in and how much more physical guys were, you know, as they progressed through their careers, you know, we had a lot of guys who came in who were, you know, athletic bodies, but, you know, put on a lot of weight and a lot of, you know, good, good weight, I should say, and muscle and get, just got bigger and stronger and faster because we were committed to being in the weight room. And I feel like it's become a lot more prevalent over the last couple of years. And I, I think sometimes one in baseball and two, especially in kind of the high academic world that people don't necessarily think that, um, you know, guys are really going to want to get after it in the weight room. Um, you know, so I'm curious to kind of see, you know, or hear what you, how much emphasis you guys do uh, in putting the weight room in, in, in taking care of that type of stuff. Yeah. And I think you're spot on. I I think that with uh, just the availability of information out there, it's, it's really one of the common denominators for kids that they see is the weight room's a big piece of any college program, anybody that's playing professionally, it's, it's big. And so, yeah, I, we see the same thing where the kids are coming in more physical and you're like, Oh my God, like I've, Five years ago, you didn't see many guys looking like that. And now it's most every player coming in, even pitchers, more physical than before. Um, you know, I, I think that it's communicated as a, hey, be ready to go because it's demanding when you get here. Um, and if if they haven't fully taken advantage of strength programs, uh, once they get here, our strength coach, Gunner, does an amazing job with our guys. Eski talks about it all the time. We're one of the best compliments he gets is, we go out and play Oklahoma and their coach is left telling him like, I don't know what you guys do, but you look like a football team out there. And our, our guys are physical. We have a bunch of numbers that back up 
how the added research and applied science in the weight room has led to over the last four years, a decreased amount of injury, which is one of the big stats we look at Two, its recovery time on the injury has decreased significantly. And then one of the interesting ones that uh, our strength coach and our athletic trainer brought to the table recently was availability of play. And last season we had a 98% availability of play uh, with, with our guys, which was, you know, taking the top 10 dudes that start regularly and seeing how many total games they're available for. And that's an unheard of number, right? It went from a something around a 90 to a 94 to a 98. And a lot of that credit is due to our strength coach, who isn't just the strength coach that I had in college that was, you know, the meathead, be tough, be up or whatever. Gunner's, Gunner's a scientist. I talked to him and I feel like, I mean, my, my God, I don't even know that we're speaking the same language sometimes because of the amount of time and work and, and stress that he puts into it. And it's a lot of pride involved. And so, yeah, the weight room is a massive piece for us and it's, it's communicated early on and he sends out voluntary workouts to all of our incoming guys throughout the summer. And it kind of gives them a glimpse into, okay, this is, I need to start being able to, to do these things and they've got ample time to prepare themselves. But if, if they're not quite ready, when they get here, they, they get caught up pretty quick. I'm glad you brought up the injury prevention piece in the health portion of it, because I think that that often gets overlooked is that guys think, well, I need to be in the weight room to get big and strong. It's like, well, yeah, that's part of it. But the other part is, is that if you're physically strong, if you're moving well, if you're recovering effectively, not only do you get the physical gains that guys need to have bigger, faster, stronger, but the outcome, if you do it right, is you actually play more. And I mean, there's the old, and this just predates predates all of us by probably decades but the best type of ability is availability and you, know, you got to be healthy to play and um i think that gets lost sometimes in the grind to get big and strong and put up big numbers on the squat rack and whatever people do is that it's not just about that but it's about the preparation for being able to stay on the field and, and being able to you know maintain the gains that you have and, and and make sure that you're able to sustain because college baseball is a, I mean, it's tough, like 56 games, it's packed into a tight window. You're practicing, you're traveling. I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes into it in, in terms of what you need to do to take care of your body. No, I, absolutely. And I, I agree with you. I think the injury prevention piece is the, one of the most overlooked pieces. I mean, all of us right now, we could go in and, you know, squat and bench and look good, but, you know, we don't need the functionality piece. Yeah. I, I would say that let those numbers come when, the, when they're supposed to come, you know, and um, uh, again, our, our strength coach does such a great job and a lot of our guys come in really eager to, to do things, but maybe their movement patterns aren't correct. And we have to adjust that a little bit so that we don't have that long-term risk of, blowing a hammy because you know our squat doesn't look right or our rdls don't look right but it, it is incredible that even if they're starting at a lower weight they're all pushing big weight when they're supposed to you know and that's that's the big piece is when they're when they're supposed to do it they do it from an in-season perspective how often are your position players getting a lift in you know during that that seven day cycle yeah, that's, that's, I think one of the things that we do differently is uh, they're still lifting three days a week in season. Um, a lot of them will go in more and the extra days that they go in are a little bit more prehab type things, you know, like a good stretch foam roll, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, we, we lift three days. And I think one of the more impressive parts about our guys is we go on the road, our strength coach travels with us and that's, that's a luxury right in itself. But he travels with us and uh, everywhere that we go has been accommodating and allows us to get in for lifts. And I would say every single, you know, Friday morning, Saturday morning before games, our starters were in there getting lifts in with our strength coach and every pitcher that had just started. If Quinn starts on Friday, he was in there Saturday morning at Oklahoma lifting in their facility, you know, getting it in. And the, I think the days of, I'm just going to kind of long run this out and then stretch and just get back after. I think those are kind of past us. And uh, 
And we, we see that with some of the durability. I mean, Quinn doing those little things allows him to have the game that he had in the playoffs that was like really talked about with the 156 pitch game. And, you know, if you think that that there's not a lot of conversations that went into that about what tracking his workload, health, recovery, all that stuff, all those things went into account in letting him go back out there because he wanted to. And a lot of it's because of those building blocks that he had been doing all those weeks leading up to it. So yeah, in-season lifting is is massive for us. Yeah, for the for the high school guys who are listening, the high school and the travel ball circuit is grueling. I mean, these guys are, you know, you're playing five games in three days. I mean, that's something you don't even ask your guys to do. But finding the time to get those lifts in during the high school season, finding those times to get in the gym during the summer season for high school guys can at least make sure that you're not regressing. Um, from a physical perspective. I mean, we see it all the time with guys is that they get into July and you see the velo drop or the bat speed starts to go a little bit and they start to lose some of their mechanical stuff that makes them a, a good offensive player. And, you know, for the high school guys and the parents who were, who were listening to this, I mean, if the Stanford guys are doing it and you want to be a college baseball player, I think it speaks to, you know, having the mentality of starting to do some things that college play, baseball players do and, you know, maybe it's not three times a week, but maybe it's you find a way to get in the gym twice a week to make sure that you're at least maintaining some of the strength that you gain during the offseason. Absolutely. I, I think I think that that's that's a monumental piece. I wish I had known more about it, you know, back when I was playing. Right. Like just played all the time and didn't really care about that other piece. And, you know, who knows? Um, but, yeah, I, I think even if you're on the road a lot, try and get into a hotel gym on one of those days where maybe you have a late game and just do some light stuff it, it can make a difference in the long run yeah Andy says it all the time you're if you're lifting twice a week and hitting like two times a week like you're not even you're doing less than the bare minimum of when you're going to get to college so like you know if you are listening like you you, you want to I'm not saying that everyone's going to have the ability to do it right like when, when we're coaching in college and you're at name the institution like you have the facilities and you have the the time and the, the the ability to get out there and hit almost 24 hours a day um and lift quite a bit like so you you can carve that time out i understand it's not the easiest for everyone but the the fact remains if it's only going to be once or twice a week or zero times a week like you're doing less than the bare minimum which is going to not only hinder you in the recruiting process but also you know, once you get there, because that, that switch, I, I, I think is, is one of the biggest things that, that younger kids, when we talk about Stevie's learning curves and such, like the weight room is one of the biggest, I, I think for, for younger guys is all of a sudden you're like, like, yeah, you might be physical, but you're not physical in the sense of you're physical from a collegiate baseball standpoint. Like we're going to, we're going to really get after it. And it's going to be a little bit of an adjustment for you. <clears throat> um, I had my next question here queued up and I forgot, I forgot where it was. Um, that's okay. The, I, I'll go with this one. What, how much do you guys, and I know it's obviously different because of the academics, but how much, how much weight do you guys put on like rankings or anything like that out of PBR, perfect game, things like that? Like, do you use it as like, you know, a, a cross-checking mechanism or is it like, Hey, we're going to go after the top hundred kids on these lists and see what shakes out. Yeah, I I actually was just talking about that question before I left the office. And I, I would say one of the things we pride ourselves on is not paying a lot of attention to that. Uh, if it if it happens to be that we get some some perfect game tens and everything, then great. But at the end of the day, we we have to believe in the type of athlete that fits our program and our clubhouse and and that kind of thing a little bit more than maybe necessarily the sexiest names out there. Right. And and we'll get those guys. I think our, our record, our track record is kind of proven. And so we'll get some of those guys because of that, but I think we also take pride in being able to just steal some guys, right. We have a couple guys from the central Valley who may not have been like the most highly ranked guys, but one of them ended up playing shortstop for us in the world series last year as a sophomore and had some major hits for us. And, it's kind of a he was a good player, but maybe a little little bit more less known player. So yeah, I don't I don't think the rankings play a, a huge factor into things because um, once you get here, you know everybody's everybody's a zero until until they you know they they do something. Um, 
And, and we see it, we see it often. I'm sure you guys do too, where somebody's ranked this and then they show up and you're like, yeah, it's just not, not quite, not quite what I would have put that number at, you know, and hopefully they get there. But um, yeah, we don't, we don't put a big emphasis on that. We like trying to find the diamonds in the rough. You mentioned the clubhouse fit, program fit. What are this? What are some of the things that cue you in that a guy has some of those intangibles, some of those character traits that that make you want him to be a part of the program? And then I guess the 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 flip of that is, you know, what are some of the red flags that that you see either on the field or, you know, maybe during a visit that can that can turn you off to a recruit? Yeah, I I think that. Coach Esker says that the locker room is more important than anything to him, right? It's more important than the coaches we have. It's more important than anything. Like there will be nothing in Stanford that comes above the greater good of the locker room. And I think that that's why we've had sustained success is because of that. We have a bunch of great dudes. I mean, we have, we have guys that after the worst loss of their season are still like giving batting gloves to kids, right? They're there. Some of them, their college careers have ended and, they just got done crying in, in Omaha together and they're still taking times to, to speak with their parents or sign autographs or take pictures because that's, that's, they're really high character human beings and high quality human beings. And so I think that, you know, it, the, the high school kids that stand out from a character standpoint are good teammates above and beyond everything else. Right. And you, you guys had mentioned it earlier about, what's what do you look like on your worst game right are you still there for your boys or are you kind of worried about what the video looks like you know is, are you are you there for your teammates because at the end of the day it's it's just a college is just at any level a more amplified version of what you've done in high school right so your boys are your boys in high school and it's the same thing once you get to college and you got to be somebody that the guys want to be around on your worst day right because if you've set that that personality up of, Hey, I'm, I'm there for you guys, no matter what, they're going to lift you up on your, on your toughest time. Right. Uh, and then, you know, the red flags are just whatever the, the opposite of that looks like. You know, I personally, from a, just a strict personal standpoint, I, I don't like the, the guys that are really demonstrative after they just miss a pitch and don't make it to first base. Right. And that, that kind of thing will drive Esky nuts at this level. Um, we had that in the fall at one point where, a guy didn't go all the way to first base on a line drive. And he started talking about Nico Horner, who's, you know, worth X amount of millions of dollars. And he goes, not once did he not run all the way to first base. And if that guy can do it, you guys should be expected to do it too. And quickly the switch was flipped because, you know, our guys are are standing on the shoulders of what the players before them built here at Stanford. And so they're trying to carry on that, that legacy and pass it on to the guys below them. So yeah, just, what kind of guy are you on your on your worst day? I think is just such a important thing to be able to look at, and you know that that and our guys have helped me become a better a better person and coach to be around too. You know, it's it's uh, you surround yourself with that those kind of people, and it just everybody reaps the benefits from it. It's incredibly important. It's a broad statement, but the be a good teammate. I think it encompasses exactly what you talked about, like you're going to support each other. You're pulling in the same direction. Like you understand that your success is the team's success and your failure doesn't necessarily mean that it's the team failure and that you're working together and, you know, that you're going to have down moments and you need to, you want guys to be there to support you. So if that's the case, you should probably reciprocate that. And if you kind of start at a foundational level, if you can do that, you're probably going to end up being a pretty good teammate. If you can just support guys no matter what happens and they support you, no matter what happens, you you got a pretty strong foundation from a cultural perspective and the travel ball. Now I think lends itself to some, to some selfishness, right? It's a, there's a lot of showcasing and, and I get it. You know, baseball is a, to a certain extent, it's a selfish game. Um, but we always talk about it when you get to college, it, it's really binary. It's, did you win or did you lose? And, um, the guys who get on the bus and they're oh for four after you just took a series at USC and they're pouting like those guys are tough to be around. Um, you know, you you know, it it's not that they shouldn't, you know, not be upset, but it's not that they shouldn't care that they didn't have a good game, but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be the driving emotion. Um, you know, maybe you get back into the cage and get some more swings in. 
you know, when you get back off the bus or something like that, but you should still be able to rejoice in the fact that like you did, you came and did what you were trying to accomplish to do. And, you know, for high school guys who were, who are out there that how you behave is, is a big piece of what coaches look at. And, you know, if you're there watching them, probably pretty good. What you do from an emotional perspective, from a communication perspective with your teammates and how you interact, I think it's, it's kind of the thing that can seal the deal for a lot of guys when they're evaluating players is, you know, what, what do they do besides the physical stuff? Cause there's a lot of good players. Um, there's a lot of good players out there and you know, some coaches will just walk away if they don't feel really comfortable about the kid they're getting. I, I will say too, uh, one little quick note on that is, and I know it's the, the extreme case, but uh, you know, Brock Jones was the guy that was picking up the dugout every game. Right. We have a thousand Gatorade cups there and the best player on the team is picking up all the cups. Right. Kind of a lead by example guy. And to your to your point, too, is we we had a we had a freshman a couple of years ago who uh, we just taken the series at UCLA at UCLA on. You know, we had played the Jackie Robinson game on ESPN and uh, on the Sunday game, this kid had an 0 for 4 game. And, but we won the series, which is massive down there. John Savage, always really well coached teams, right? It was a, it was a dog fight and, uh, our guys are hyped. And, you know, this, this guy was a little bit upset in the dugout and our Friday night guy at the time, Alex Williams, who's with the Marlins now get, I mean, got in his face and, uh, you know, told him like, Hey, you know, <laughs> you need to stop caring about you and being be a little bit more appreciative of what the boys are doing right now. And it was a guy that was having a great season, but he just got caught up in the moment, was frustrated with his performance, and it really outweighed that. And, you know, to to both their credits, he never had that issue. The rest of the time that he was here, never had that issue. He would have bad games, but if we won, it was a hey, we won. And that's that's a big piece, too, is it's not all like sunshine and roses that, you know, the good players and the good teammates also are able to uphold the standard and be able to have a tough conversation with the guy about like, Hey man, you're not acting like yourself right now. Like let's, let's step it up a little bit and let's be better than that next time. And those conversations are are hard to have, whether you're 15 years old or whether you're 23 years old, it's, it's not an easy conversation to have. And I, I give our guys a lot of credit for that too, is just being able to, to have those tough conversations and hold a standard too. Yeah. I think the one thing that makes really good teams great is that teammate accountability. Um, you know, when, when there's a standard to be upheld and you, in the, the players uphold it themselves, it makes our job and, and well, your job as a coach a lot easier. You know, you don't have to say anything, you know, uh, none of the coaches really have to go handle it because it's being taken care of by the, the, the other players, you know, and I, I, th- I think back when you, you know, you were talking about that you didn't t- hit someone who didn't hit a hit first on a line drive. Like I had a rule in the fall, only in the fall that if no matter what you did, if you hit a ball in the air, like you had to touch second base and it wasn't necessarily like we weren't going to do it in the game if we had a lazy fly ball. But the whole idea was that like, you're going to run hard out of the box. And, you know, when we started to get really good was when all of a sudden, like someone wouldn't do it. And there was like seven guys that were like, yo, like we touched second base on that. Like, I, I don't know, like, what, what are you doing? You know, so and then I was like, it was like, OK, like I don't have to handle the the effort piece really that much anymore because like we, we have, you know, 30 guys who are on top of this and like they're going to get on the other four that don't necessarily put that effort forth on. And it's going to be a different four guys every day. Right. Like. You know, and, and, and I think the one thing that, you know, you, you kind of have to judge is, you know, at high academic schools, sometimes dudes are just tired because they were up till three in the morning studying for two tests and they forget and that's fine. You know, but it, you know, it, it's, you know, you'll, you'll hear them like, Hey, remember we're going to second base on these. Like, what are we doing here? You know, and that's where it's like, okay, like we're, cause you're right. It is hard. It is hard for to teammate to teammate and friend to friend. And, you know, it's your boy that you got to get into sometimes. And, you know, that can be difficult to do and that, but that's what really great teams do is they hold the standard and they hold everyone to account. Absolutely. I love that run to second base thing. That's, that's awesome. I stole it from uh coach Brady and coach Tischler. So I can't, I cannot claim that as my own. I stole it from them, but they're there. I mean, Columbia has been pretty good. So I, I mean, I figured that they're doing it. We should probably do something similar. 
Yeah, both great, great coaches. Absolutely. It's, it seems to mean even more when the play hard stuff and some of that accountability stuff comes from your best guys. And, and it doesn't come from like a, in a demonstrative way. It, like the best leader I was around was a kid named Ryan Lindemuth, who uh, he actually got drafted twice um, at William and Mary. He ended up playing in the Yankees organization, but he was just a super tough kid. He was a really high end, polished offensive college player, but he was super quiet, didn't say too much, lead by example guy. So when he did say something, and he didn't even have to say it loud. Sometimes it, you didn't even know that he really did it, but he would pull somebody aside and be like, hey, man, that's not – we don't do it like that here. And then it was like, all right, well, that's done. We don't have to worry about that. And, and as a coach, you're like smiling inside. You're like, man, like we don't have to – we can we can look at the bigger picture stuff because we got this guy who's – like nothing's ever going to get too out of whack because he won't let it happen. Um, and if you have guys like that and you can find a couple guys in the previous classes that they can learn from, you can get that string of consistent culture where Alex Williams passes it to Brock Jones, who passes it to Tommy Troy, who passes it on to the next guy. And now you have this sustained culture of, hey, this is kind of how we do it. This is our standard and we're not going to waver from it. So let's all pull in the same direction and let's get this done and, and worry about trying to accomplish the big things as a team. Well, a hundred percent. I I think that that's one of the things that makes us good is that uh, just, this is, this is how we've done it. And guys have just followed along. I think every year that I've been here, we've been worried about what leadership's going to look like. And every year, you know, a couple guys rise to the top and, it's taken shape in different ways, whether it's one of our best players who's not playing well, telling another guy like, Hey, I can't be the guy to say something right now. Like you're playing well, guys will listen to you, whatever, like the maturity there. And maybe that comes from, you know, the, the type of kid that we have, or maybe it just comes from what Eski has set, you know, culture wise here. And I, maybe it's a blend of both, but yeah, I think that that's, that's, yeah, that's when, you know, you've got it going pretty good. Well, and it's not. I I I, I digress for one second because I think that this is very important to 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 talk about too. Is like it's not eyewash either when they're picking up the dugout after that. You know what I mean? Like that. Like you see it on Twitter. You see it like it's not eyewash. Like it's it's who those kids are and it's what the program is. Like and and there's there's a there's a distinction there because you'll see it all you know in the summer. Like oh, we leave the Gatorade bottles everywhere. Like yeah, you shouldn't leave the Gatorade bottles stuck to the nails in the dugout. Like yes. I get it, but I see it all summer long. Like, yes, but like, they're, they're like, it's not like you'll see the other stuff and it's like, yo, it's not eyewash. Like, these are who these kids are. This is what this program is. Like, you're seeing it one, like, you see it this one time and you're like, eh, what is this? Like, they literally do that every day, whether it's at practice, whether it's in the locker room, whether it's in the, you know, wherever it is, they're on the road at UCLA. Like, they do the same thing every day. Like, you just happen to see it on ESPN. In a super like, yeah, like, but like, this is something that like you do, they do day in, day out for four years during their career at Stanford. Like, it's not something that's eyewash and, and like, and likely it's going to carry on once they graduate because it, it's just, it's who they are and, and what they're made of and what they're, what they believe in doing. And I think that that's an important distinction to make that I think sometimes when, when as coaches we talk about this stuff and it's it's easy to kind of get lost and like, well, you know, this is what like what we do, but like it's it's literally an everyday thing that goes on within your program. It's not something that is just like, well, like when it gets tough, like he, you know, he's tough. Like, no, he's tough every single day. Every day. And I think that that's an, an important distinction to make because that's what ends up making those kids better. Like the failure that they work through. And the cleaning up after them. So whatever it is that they do that they're good at, like that's a day in, day out, 365 days a year thing that these kids do. And that like that should be celebrated for these kids. Absolutely. And I mean, the the prime example of that would be the fact that Brock would hate that I told that story. You know, like he doesn't want that, you know, he doesn't want that kind of credit or anything. It's just it is who he is. And uh, yeah, you're 100 percent right. 
Yeah, those those kids are special because I'm sure they don't even think twice about it. It's just it's just the way they do things, and you get enough of those guys, and the other guys they got no choice but to fall in line and they learn how to do stuff. Um, yeah, it's a special environment to be a part of, and when you get to witness it as a coach, those are the moments that they make up for all the you know the tough days, the bad losses, the you know the bad practices, like you get one of those moments where you see it kind of come to fruition and you see the young kid figure it out because the old kid held him to a standard and you're like, ah, that's what it's all about. Like, that's really what it's all about. Cause those kids will, they'll take that with them when they get done playing, when they get out of school, like they'll do some of the little stuff that goes unnoticed, but they'll do it every day. And yeah, it's pretty special to watch unfold. And I think too, especially geared towards like the high school kids, that is one of the things that early on in my career that I forgot, but I, I think is important to remember is the reason that that stuff is important is because of what you said, what what you're going to carry on after you get done playing, right? Like our our job is coaches and and educators and and leaders of of young athletes is to help them not only be as successful as they can be on the field, but to also be great human beings when they go on and and leave this place and. Yeah, if if we're not if we're not doing that, and we're just caring about the day that they leave campus and how many wins they're walking away with, I think we're doing something wrong too, right? Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. I think that's a good segue into, you know, we we start this out with a question about recruiting, and then we always try to bookend it with a question around some advice that you would want to give to. High school players, not just about recruiting, but some some wisdom you might want to impart on high school guys as they go through this process and, and try to achieve their dream of playing college baseball. Yeah, I I would say a couple of things. One, if you're if you're looking for the academic piece, I mean, start investing in that young. Right, I think prior to the to the new role change, one of the things that we did really well was. We stopped trying to find the Stanford player going into their senior year and started trying to build them from their freshman year on of like, this is what it looks like and finding the kids who are willing to do that. And they exist, right? The kids who are like Duke, Stanford, the, the, whatever it is, the Bucknells, the high academic universities of the world. I, this is where I've wanted to go because either grandpa went there or, you know, mom went there and they, they have great jobs start from a young age and and really in, invest in and take interest in what it looks like the blueprint of getting into that school what classes you might need to take that's important but i mean on the baseball side of it it's kind of like that the the thing i'll say is uh two piece on the baseball side when when our guys when they stop practice and most people stop practice that's when it's just starting for most of them right they have this this love and obsession with the game of baseball to where like they just want to put the work in and and you know i i think that yeah one if you're just doing it once or twice a week that is legitimately the bare minimum the great players it's not a light switch it's not turned off and on it's it's always on um we get done at six o'clock and they grab a quick bite and they're back in the cages often at seven o'clock right and putting in work on their craft and i know at a high school age, you can be limited, but at least, you know, if you're, if you're doing something once or twice a week, maybe try and mix in a little bit more, invest in, in yourself and your future a little bit more. Cause that time piece is really like currency, right? How you spend it, waste it, invest it now is going to pay dividends in the future. And then on the college aspect of it, like just find the right fit. That's, that's such a, a big thing. Like outside of, the the sunken diamonds of the world and and the the LSUs and and everything like which great programs on both sides of it baseball is just a game in between the white lines and I'll I'll remember a conversation I had with our first base coach Andre Mercurio we stepped into Omaha the second time through and we're on that practice day and he goes yeah, you know it's crazy how cool they make all this look on TV but like when you're here it's it's legitimately just baseball across the board and um and if you're if you're a coach and you want any further proof than that, watch some Stanford games and you'll realize that we're all coaching the same kids based on the mistakes that we make. Right. Like it's all just baseball. So really take some time to find the right fit. Watch some games. And I feel like everybody says that. And I wish I had listened to that more when I was younger of just like, 
I need to figure out what level and where and location, you know? So just really take your time because everyone's going to want you to, to push, push, push into commitment. And you may want to feel that too, because your friends are, are committing early or whatever, but man, fit is just so important because you're making a decision that's going to at the very minimum affect a full year of your life. And you don't want to turn around and be like, I wasted that. And now I'm transferring somewhere else. Right. Like really see where, where you want to go and where you could see yourself being for hopefully three, if you're a star and, you know, four, and then be able to be proud to rep those colors of that university, the rest of your life. It's important. It's great advice. Yeah. I got, I got nothing to say after that. CJ, Really thankful you came on today. I'm glad we were able to set this up. Ton of awesome stuff for people to unpack. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. And, you know, obviously, best of luck to you guys this spring. I hope you guys get have a great fall. And, uh, yeah, best of luck to you guys at Stanford. And, you know, we'll, we'll probably look to have you back on this at some point. So don't forget about us. Absolutely. Would love to. This, is, this has been a blast. I would love to be back. Thank you, CJ. Yes, sir. Appreciate you guys. Thanks, man. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, go ahead and follow us on on social media. Keith, what do they got to do for YouTube? Smash throttle the subscribe. Throttle Smash it, the subscribe button. Throttle it. Yeah, yeah. We got an episode coming up or one that you may have listened to already. Uh, we're going to throttle that one. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, EMD Baseball. If you want to learn more about what we do, helping players and parents navigate the recruiting process, go to emdbaseball.com. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.